welcome to episode number five of Popular Volcanics, a podcast about volcanoes, eruptions, and all things geologic. I'm Eric Clemetti from Denison University and Discover Magazine. And I am Janine Krippner with the Smithsonian Institution Global Volcanism Program. So this week, we are going to be talking about lots of things that come racing down the sides of volcanoes. So we're excited to talk about that. And we have some little bits of banter to talk about with things that are going on. One of the things, I guess, geologically in the news right now is not a volcano-related event, but rather the sort of string of earthquakes that has been happening uh, in Albania and Bosnia. And now there's another one further south in Greece that happened that was about a magnitude six earlier today. So it's it's been a loud time over the last week or so in that area. And I think a lot of people don't realize that is a geologically active area up and down uh, the Adriatic. The earthquake in Albania was uh, magnitude 6.4. It potentially affected up to 1.3 million people at least felt it. And there's been, I think, 30 deaths so far because it's just not an area that a lot of people, I think, were prepared for an earthquake of that magnitude. And then there's a 5.7 up the coast in Bosnia a couple days afterwards. And then this magnitude 6 down south of it near Crete that happens so but there is a there is a complicated tectonic setting part of the the Mediterranean where we have Africa and Eurasia and a fault line running all the way down the east coast of Italy so it's it's not unheard of to have earthquakes like this in in that part of Europe yeah there's a lot of squishing and moving and things going on over there to be very typical I don't think there's a lot of awareness and preparedness for events like this. So I think that's where we've run into the biggest issue with this earthquake in Albania is just it's not something that's on anyone's radar at all. Yeah. And as we spoke last episode with Brian Tibbush, it's so important not only to have the science and understand what's going on, but to have preparedness and people working on this full time to get communities ready for these events. I put that out as, again, there are lots of places in the U.S. where a situation like this could be similar, where there's not a record of historic, at least in our living memory, uh, of earthquakes in, let's say, the Midwest. There is very much the likelihood that such things could happen in the areas around Memphis and up and down the uh, New Madrid fault zones. So this, I think, should be a reminder to some of these cities in the Midwest that don't think about earthquakes that they could happen and that one should be prepared for them, even if you haven't had one since anyone who lives in the city has been alive. Yeah, we live on such an active planet. And I'm going to ask you my my monthly pop quiz. Do you know how many volcanoes are erupting today? Today? Or just like in general today? Uh-huh. like Eruption episodes. So have been er- erupting some kind of product within the last three months until we cut it off saying this eruption's over. Oh, now I'm trying to remember what we said last month. And it's, that's the biggest challenge here is uh, I'm going to say four. 43. Oh, that's so close. 45. Oh my, I was I was close, yeah. You were. And since we're it. we're nearly at the end of the year. So eruptions for 2019 in total there have been 69 and new eruptions, so eruptions that have started this year instead of that were, you know, continuing from last year, 25 new eruptions. And this is actually down, even though we still have a month to go, so this is preliminary. Um, this is down from 2018, where last year we had 78 total and 37 new. So how many times I've had people arguing this year or seen people arguing that volcanic activity is increasing, it's actually been lower this year. But of course, 
one year is nothing in geologic time. <laughs> you look at the sort of the running average over the last decade or more, that's it's nothing much of a pattern is going on for volcanic activity. So No, it is not declining. <laughs> yep, not declining, not, not increasing. increasing. It's business as usual. Yep. Any anything in particular of note that you have seen in the last recent weeks of uh, volcanic activity? Um, not really. I mean, to be fair, I haven't been paying close attention because it is conference season. <laughs> but um, we had some something at White Island. Would you like to chat about that? Yeah, I mean, so White Island, for those of you unfamiliar with it, is the island in the middle, of, well, it's maybe not in the middle, but it's in the Bay of Plenty off the North Island of New Zealand. My homeland. Yes. And it is an interesting little volcano. I guess it's not that little because it's coming up from the bottom of the bay, but it's an interesting volcano in the sense that its cone is kind of just exposed right at the surface. Uh, it has a lot of hydrothermal activity. It occasionally has people who come and tour it. It's rather questionable whether that's a good idea or not. Yeah. You have to sign your life away. You have to sign that if anything happens or you die, it is your own responsibility. I've done it. Because the volcano has the tendency to have these explosions in the crater, and it can be even a very, very tiny explosion. But if you're in a crater of a volcano with a tiny explosion, you're probably not in a good place. The GNS science folk over in New Zealand, of course, keep a close eye on White Island, and it's had a uh, beginning to appear to be in a period of elevated unrest with some more sort of tremors and hydrothermal activity. And then there's an earthquake that was relatively deep underneath the Bay of Plenty this last week that was about a magnitude 5.9. So that could be entirely unrelated but it could be also something that the volcano might respond to that all these things put together suggest that we, we could be seeing that we're entering back into a period where White Island start uh, being a little more active. It's been quiet over the last few years. So uh, it might be returning back to a period of activity because it's one of the more active volcanoes in the New Zealand volcanic zone there that I I can't think of anything else that would be as active as White Island. Nope. Would you say? Nope, it is our most active. And if it is going to erupt, it's probably going to be around the middle of January because that's when I'll be leaving New Zealand. And that's generally what happens. I leave the country and then something erupts. So <laughs> there's a very non-scientific volcanic forecast. <laughs> there you go. So we can look forward to that. Um, so uh, anything, yeah, I mean, it's been, in terms of eruptions that have shown up in the news, there hasn't been a lot that has caught the media's attention. We've had an anniversary of a fairly significant eruption. Yeah, yeah. Argun, two years ago, the volcano that kind of launched me into communication. Um, that's, that was two years ago now, which is just blowing my mind. <laughs> you know, it was one of these eruptions that showed us what could go wrong when you have a volcano that's being active, even without erupting, and is of international interest to how crazy the information can get and how wrong the information can get. So it was pretty significant for me, not so much on global terms, but changed my life. Yeah, it's 
again, anytime we have one of these big eruptions that make the news, there seems to be a lot of information that goes uh, awry quite quickly. And there is an article that uh, came out, I guess, last week about some of the more popular purveyors of geologic misinformation on the internet. We'll post the link up on the page for the podcast, but it was an interesting uh, article about how there are people who seem to in- intentionally enjoy sowing this sort of misinformation for whatever reasons they have. It is a constant battle between the people who are trying to release the accurate information so people can make the right decisions versus those who gain extensive YouTube followers and instead tell tales of the fact that volcanoes erupting in Alaska are being caused by fracking or that there is a vast earthquake generating machine that the Air Force runs. Things like that, that surprisingly large amount of people want to believe. I don't know if it's just because it's it's fun to think you know more than the experts claim to know, but it's, it is a definitely a internet phenomenon that existed before the internet, but you would have to find these sorts of people and subscribe to their newsletters that you'd get in the mail, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but on the internet now, it's as easy as just going on YouTube and looking up something about earthquakes and you find these sorts of characters out there. Yeah. And it's, you know, it goes to show how much more work we have to do as experts. Um, and that's partly what we're doing here with this podcast is making us more accessible and talking about the things that we see coming up that people are concerned about or helping explain what volcanoes are doing and how we study them or process like pyroclastic flows that we're going to get into today. So I really hope that this work done by us and many, many other people out there in the field are actually helping so that people can understand where to go for information and understand what the information means. Yep. It's it's always tricky because that's trying to learn how to evaluate expertise on the internet, but it's always a, a good idea to take it with a grain of salt until you have found out what the sort of credentials of the people that you're listening to might be, because there's an awful lot of people out there trying to sell you the snake oil uh, that is potentially going to get you in trouble. So that's one of the the things that I always have to watch out for the most is trying to make sure that that people send me questions and a lot of them are based on misinformation that they've heard out there about earthquakes or eruptions. And I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Paul Ashwell. So Paul got his PhD in New Zealand, but originally from the UK. And um, I went up to give a talk at his university a couple of weeks ago at the University of Toronto. And Paul, please pronounce the rest of that for me. <laughs> it's, the, it's the University of Toronto in Mississauga. Thank you so much. I had trouble in customs trying to get that right. So Paul has studied... Something extremely similar to what I studied in my PhD, but we did it on the opposite ends of the planet. So I was studying block and ash flows, which is a type of pyroclastic flow, which is specifically formed by lava domes partially collapsing. We'll go over what a lava dome is and everything, but give us a brief summary of what your research was. So for me, I started off um, based at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, and I was looking at some of the volcanoes, the lava domes in New Zealand. I wanted to know how the lava domes themselves had formed. So I had looked at the the structures within the domes and was trying to work out which bit erupted at what time compared to all the others. And then during the course of my research, I 
kind of started to focus a little bit more on these collapse events that had occurred after these lava domes had formed and they were just these big kind of blobs of lava sitting on top of this volcano and eventually part of that end of that collapsed and fell off and formed these huge block and ash flows. And I kind of got a bit more interested in why that occurred, what properties in the lava dome caused that collapse to occur when it did. Pretty neat stuff. So what a lava dome is, if you imagine holding a tube of toothpaste and squeezing it and seeing that toothpaste come out of the top, that's sort of the most easiest way to explain what a lava dome is. So you have the top of the magma conduit or system that's actually coming out of the surface and it's it's pretty solid. This stuff is near solid if not completely solid at this point. It's still ductile so it's still able to move a bit but you have this growing bigger and bigger. These can be hundreds of meters big. In fact they can grow to a couple of kilometers wide as well these lava domes and you still have pressurized gas. Remember pressurized gas is really what drives a lot of volcanic activity. So if you have this big system, this dome that's growing, you have earthquakes going sometimes and then geothermal, you have gases coming through, they can be very unstable. And so whether it's because of an eruption or something else non-volcanic activity related, parts of these can collapse and trigger a violent pyroclastic flow or block and ash flow. Um, I'm going to just term them pyroclastic flows in general. The proper term is actually pyroclastic density current. And then there are different types within that. But to be consistent with all of the hazards information out there, I'll just say pyroclastic flow or block and ash flow specifically when we're talking about dome collapse. If you are curious about lava domes and want to see how spectacular they can get, I just Googled the 1902 spine at Palais on Martinique. And the first picture that I clicked on was a tweet by Dr. Janine Krippner, who had a great photo of the spine from the Palais uh, volcano. And that's an impressive thing. It almost looks like an alien artifact, but it's this enormous tower of erupting material that uh, formed prior to the the devastating eruption that happened there uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah, these spines are nuts. So there are several different types of domes. And because we're scientists, we classify them in all these different ways. But what a spine is, is it's basically a solid chunk of rock like that toothpaste that's going straight up vertical and the sides can be nearly vertical and you can imagine that having this freshly produced solid block of magma rising i can't remember how high that got but a couple hundred meters up into the air how unstable that would be so once you have something trigger a collapse, all of that pressurized gas in the dome starts to expand violently and rip everything apart. And then you have a pyroclastic flow, or as I've been calling them recently, a rocky cloud of death. That spine, uh, just for getting the numbers out there, reached up to 300 meters tall, which is borderline ridiculous to think that there is a thousand foot tall spine of uh, lava coming straight out of the the vent on Pele in 1902. Wow. And if you want some great videos, check out the uh, Mount St. Helens, the most recent eruption. What was that, 2004 to 2008? There are some great time-lapse videos that you or she took of that just growing up. And they, there was this particular whale back. Let me jump into the question here then. So can you, for our listeners who are less familiar with the magical world of pyroclastic flows, can you, uh, Paul or Janine, talk about the sort of different 
types of flows because there's a whole bunch of different flavors of flows that can come down the side of volcanoes. Okay. Um, so we tend to classify the different types of pyroclastic flows based upon how they're formed. So whether they are from the collapse of a lava dome, for example, or whether they're just from this huge column of material that's being thrown out of the volcano and that collapses. We can classify them in different ways based upon how they form, but we can also classify them based upon their density. So the technical term that we use as volcanologists to describe them, which is pyroclastic density currents, there are different levels of density. So it's basically how much of this rocky cloud of death is made up of blocks of rock and how much is volcanic ash, which are the tiny, tiny particles um, from the sort of rock that's been smashed up, and then the volcanic gases as well. And depending on the density of the flow also changes the way it behaves as well. So exactly how far it might travel is a bit dependent on its density. So a less dense one, for example, may not just go down a valley, but it can actually also go uphill and over valleys and over hills and things like that. And then you have the interaction with water as well. So a dense pyroclastic current will sink in water, but a relatively light one will actually travel out across the surface of water. So we classify them based upon their behavior, which is uh, based upon their density and effectively where they're forming from. Cool. Yeah. I mean, so technically, I've said this before on this podcast, I'm a petrologist rather than a volcanologist, Uh, although I am can go, you know, as a petrologist, I study magma. So I think about how the magma comes out and I think about eruptions. And a lot of the volcanoes that I've worked on, of course, have pyroclastic flow deposits related to them. The one I worked in in Chile for my PhD had a significant uh, what we thought was a dome collapse block and ash flow and then Lassen in California and uh, more recently in places like uh, Mount Hood. They're pretty common occurrences on these volcanoes in subduction zones. Why is that? So the reason that lava domes seem to be quite common uh, at these subduction zone volcanoes is to do with the, uh, the composition of the magma that's coming out of those volcanoes. So when you think of a volcanic eruption and you think of these beautiful rivers of lava like you might have seen from the eruptions of Hawaii, that ma- uh, composition of magma is a very, what we'll say is a very low viscosity magma and it's got a low silica content. Silica is not the only thing that controls the viscosity of lava, but it's one of the important things. As we change the style of the volcano from the sort of Hawaiian style volcano out in the middle of the Pacific to these volcanoes that we see at the, um, at the edges of continents through the Andes and through this Cascade range, we start increasing the amount of silica that our magma contains. And as you increase the amount of silica we contain, we also increase the viscosity. So the viscosity is how, how runny, how sticky it is. High viscosity magmas are very sticky. They're very, uh, well, they don't run very much at all. And when you have volcanoes with this very, very sticky magma, you, first of all, you generally produce uh, far bigger explosive eruptions. And then at the end of that explosive eruption, you often get a lava dome being produced. And just like Janine said, with that analogy with toothpaste, it's incredibly sticky magma that comes out. And so it just doesn't flow anywhere. And it just remains on top of the volcano waiting for the next explosive eruption to kind of blow it to pieces. That stickiness there plays, it's not just the fact that it's not flowing that 
is important, but it's also the fact that that stickiness prevents bubbles from getting out of that magma and can plug up the tops of these volcanoes as well. So we're we're talking about that stickiness is is working against having the volcano behave in a more peaceful, passive fashion. It's always hard for me to describe any eruption as passive, but we're we're trapping so much energy inside these uh, domes that can really drive our volcanoes to behave in a much more uh, dramatic and explosive fashion. Sometimes we get domes at the beginning of the eruptions like Pinatubo. 91 is a more famous example of that. We talk a lot about the different classifications we have, and the more you know about volcanology, the more you realize you don't know and how highly specialized every tiny part of our field is. So we classify the different types of pyroclastic flows. And while they all might look the same on the outside, it's actually really important in order to know how they might behave. And that's important for us to understand what a volcano might do and what areas it might impact and what people might need to evacuate if that volcano starts producing a certain type of behavior. So all of this goes back towards helping communities who live around volcanoes understand what their hazards are and what areas might be impacted by them. So Paul, tell us something about one of your favorite domes that you've worked on. Oh, that is uh, that is a difficult question to answer, I think. But I, I will tell of uh, the story of Unzen Volcano in Japan, uh, which uh, erupted in the 1990s. It was uh, quite a long-lived eruption, but the main phase of that eruption was the growth of this lava dome. And it occurred on this volcano that was known to erupt. It erupted in, I think, the 1700s. It's the last eruption. But it was also surrounded by these towns and villages in Japan. So it became, at the time, a, a big focus on the monitoring of how these domes might grow. And they were constantly taking photos and measurements of the dome as it grew. And so I... I been very fortunate to go out there and actually have a look at the dome um, and been able to study some of these photos that they've got in the museums around the place. And the growth of this dome, it occurred in you know, one area of the dome would grow first of all, and then the growth would switch to another one. And you have this very piecemeal growth pattern of this dome. And then by the time it kind of got too big to sit on top of the volcano, then gravity would force a chunk of this material to fall off and because the volcano itself is several hundred meters high, you then have this cascade of material that uh, went down the valley surrounding the volcanoes. And it meant that everyone who lived around the volcano was at risk of one of these collapse events. But because it wasn't a huge explosive eruption, the authorities didn't really know exactly when these things would occur. It was kind of like waiting for a dripping tap to finally drip. It was that moment where all this material collapsed. And there are uh, several times in this volcanic eruption that people were caught unawares. And one of the um, most, I guess, unfortunate things from the volcanology side of things is that two very famous volcanologists were caught out in one of these collapse events. They were stood on top of a hill nearby the volcano looking out at the dome. There was a collapse event that occurred while they were there with about 20 or so Japanese uh, journalists from the various news stations. The pyroclastic flow swept down the valley. They thought that it would just keep going down the valley, but a portion of that pyroclastic flow detached from the rest of the flow, came up the hillside they were on, and unfortunately killed all of them, including the two famous volcanologists, the crafts, uh, who were there at the time. So um, I'll just add that there was a third volcanologist there who's often 
a lot of people don't know about it. So Harry Glicken, he was a United States volcanologist who was around from Mount St. Helens, 1980, and he studied the debris avalanche, so the landslide deposit from that eruption. And he was there with them, and he lost his life that day too. And if I recall rightly, I believe that he only just through miss or fortune, I guess, avoided the Mount St. Helens eruption. And his place was taken on by David Johnson, who was um, yeah, it's a bit complicated, but um, essentially, so it's, it's a pretty pretty horrible eruption. The Unzen, pretty devastating, and you know this is this is what we work so hard to avoid as volcanologists. We don't want to see people getting hurt and killed. And and pyrotechnic flows, they're extremely dangerous. I was reading this morning that the ratio, if you are caught in one of these, the ratio of dead to injured is 230 to one. So they're extremely deadly. And, and we should mention a lot of the description that we've offered so far has talked about the domes building up and collapsing, but we haven't talked much about where the heat comes from. Jonah, do you want to take over that since you're the magma guy? The key here is that the heat we're talking about is the fact that these domes, although they look solid, they're still at high temperature. I mean, that's one of the things that sometimes is hard to imagine is you look at some of these domes that are forming like at Mount St. Helens, or we talk about sticky lava that's coming out nearly solid. That's not like cold rock. That rock is still heated to temperatures of probably 500, 600, 700 degrees or more. When that collapses, it releases internal heat or volcanic gases as well, if you're talking about a collapse. And that heat goes with the flow as well. So we're not only talking about fast-moving blocks of rock and ash, but we're also talking that it's really hot. So the effects of the flows are the double whammy of a fast-moving wall of rocky debris plus stuff that's at 500 degrees C uh, or hotter coming down at you. Yeah, so the the typical temperature range for these things is 200 to 700 degrees Celsius, but they apparently can reach 1,000 degrees Celsius too. So these are exceptionally hot. There's a lot of very hot gas in them as well. And that's when we start to break down the more dense currents which have a lot more rock and material. And then the surge, the dilute, really gassy, hot things that can go up and over hills. In fact, I was reading this morning that they've been recorded to go over ridges over a kilometer high. So even though this is my, my specific area of expertise, I w- would always read up on them talking about them. So yeah, it's it's pretty crazy how these things can behave and they're scorching everything. They can start fires and you can understand at those temperatures how this is not good for life, even if you manage to survive the rock. So if we jump back to Unzen for a second there, what, what else can you tell us that you found interesting about working on the, the domes at Unzen? Well, the, the biggest thing for me, which is it sort of changed when I was there, it sort of changed my focus a little bit from some of my PhD, is that the danger from the collapse of these lava domes lasted a lot longer after the eruption actually finished itself. So it was perhaps up to a, a decade. And there's still a little bit of danger even today. And we're sort of almost... Uh, three decades out from that eruption, there's still a slight risk that there may be some collapse events that's going to occur as the dome continues to cool in the very, very deep middle of it. It's still a little bit hot in there, a little warm. As it continues to cool, that danger is still there. And when I went back to the lava domes that I studied, it sort of made me really consider the danger of the eruption to be actually a little bit long-lived. And this 
sort of then uh, led into sort of talking more about the eruption itself may only last, you know, the big explosive eruptions may only last uh, a day or two. The lava dome eruption may last for years, but then the danger from these collapse events then lasts for decades afterwards. And if you're someone who lives in, uh, say, a farm on the, the outer edges of a volcano, you've been told to evacuate because this eruption's going on. You're, you want to get back there. You want to actually get back to your farm, to your neighbours, to your family who live there, who've grown up there. And these dangers can prevent people from being able to do that, which I can only imagine must be so frustrating for someone who is constantly told you cannot move back home, even though for them the eruption has finished. Combine that with the long-term hazard of lahars, volcanic mud flows, from all the debris that was produced during either explosions or other pyroclastic flows. You have this, yeah, long-term danger and the fact that these volcanoes are... they're, they're showing you where future hazards are likely going to lie even after any of the current hazards have ended. So this is where we've seen like the uh, eruption that happened in Chaiten and the sort of controversy and um, arguments about whether where to rebuild the city and to allow people uh, to move back to places that had been inundated by lahars. Human instinct does not lead us to to handle thinking of long-term hazards particularly well. And we would like to return to places we are familiar, but sometimes that's just not going to be in the cards. Yeah, it's 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 pretty rough. That's a really good point. And to get everyone um, on the same page here, so if you think of a volcanic eruption producing volcanic ash, which is pulverized rock crystals and glass, and pyroclastic flows, and then ballistic rocks that come flying out of the volcano too, you're producing a lot of rock. And essentially, if you think of it like sand, if you've been to the beach, you know what sand is. It's pretty heavy, it's very loose. So a lot of rock and sand in these deposits. And these deposits can be very thick, which we can be talking about a huge amount of material that is just thrown out onto the volcano. So if you have heavy rain that's coming after this eruption has ended, this can be washing this away very, very quickly. You can imagine building a sandcastle and then pouring water on it, how quickly this material will remobilize and will be moving again. And this can happen for decades after if you have a big enough eruption. So it's, you know, I have so much compassion for people living with these hazards. There are so many different dangers and they can go on for so long. And I hear so many times, why don't they just move? You know, it's a very privileged question to ask. A lot of people do not have the means. A lot of people are very connected to their land, to their culture, to their spiritual aspects of their land. And a lot of people just cannot afford to leave everything they own. So it's it's a very complicated situation, not just the science, but the people aspect of these eruptions too. So what are some other places that you have ended up exploring or examining in in dome land so chai ten the eruption of chai ten in 2008 it was what i would almost describe as a fairly typical large explosive eruption talking about the, the, um, the town of chai ten it's in uh, sort of was central south chile badly damaged in a in relatively low population area but right next to the volcano is the town of chai ten as well and so the town was evacuated during this volcanic eruption the volcanic eruption um excavated a large crater in the volcano, inside of which, at the end of the eruption, a very large dome started to grow. All of the material that had come out from this uh, explosive eruption was, as Eric was saying, remobilized 
as these lahars that flew uh, that was uh, flowing through the village and destroyed a lot of uh, buildings or very heavily damaged the buildings that were there. And in the, the years following it, we had this big dome continuously growing and shedding material uh, that was uh, a big worry to the authorities in that area to allow people to go back to the town. But the people who lived there wanted to go back. And they have floated ideas around about completely moving the town around the bay uh, so it was not in danger of this volcano anymore. But everyone else just wanted to get back to their house, to rebuild, to just continue living their lives. So I was very fortunate to go, be able to go up onto the volcano and down into the crater to look at this lava dome. It's very stable now, so it was, it was uh, okay to do that. And uh, I was able to look at to try to climb up the dome to see if I could find any structures. But uh, unfortunately, it was just a bit too steep and unstable for me to actually do that. So I couldn't actually go up. But the the town and the deposits around the volcano were pretty stunning. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's remarkable when you visit a place that has seen eruptions like that and find the evidence of what was there before. It's like sort of when I see the famous partially buried A-frame near Mount St. Helens, you both realize how much material got moved and that places were completely inundated. But then you also realize that you're standing in the place that was inundated by that eruption. And you have to start really pausing for a while to ponder, you know, how sensible is it that we have rebuilt a gift shop and things right next to this A-frame that was buried by the lahars related to that eruption. And it is it is really hard. You know, I know in some places the towns have just been abandoned and rebuilt like Armero in Colombia after the Ruiz eruption. Uh, but in other times, it's just there's there's a connection to the land and to the area that you grew up and people rebuild all the time in all sorts of different natural disasters. So I go back and forth about how I feel where we sit as uh, government authorities to tell people that they can't live there in the face of a hazard that may or may not happen again in their lifetime. You want to err on the side of, of having people be safe from these disasters. I guess it really depends on the frequency and um, the level of risk people are willing to to undertake uh, live live within. Yeah, and that you know that makes me think of the most famous park list of flow. I think you know every time I explain what I study that I study park list of flows, people go, oh, like Vesuvius, like Pompeii. Yes, exactly like Pompeii. Um, and so we have these towns, Pompeii and Herculaneum, and a few other areas around that volcano in 79 AD that were buried by these hot pyroclastic flows, and a lot of people died, and many people moved away. And then they've been, you know, dug up for us to go and look through as tourists. And then you look around, and there's this big volcano sitting right there, and an even bigger one, Camp Flagray, next to it. And the area is so densely populated. So it's something as, as people, you know, there are, we live in zones with hurricanes, with flooding, with fires, with, with blizzards, with earthquakes. We, we live with hazards all the time. It's knowing what our specific hazards are and making sure we can mitigate them or lessen the impact as much as possible. Have you guys been to Pompeii? I have. Nope. I've been to Vesuvius, but not Pompeii. <laughs> but it's, it's pretty amazing in a horrible, horrible way, how quickly an entire city or town or village can be just wiped out. I think what it should be noted is that when we talk about Pompeii being buried, it was completely buried. After the eruption, which only lasted uh, you know, a couple of days at most, there was no trace left of Pompeii at the new ground surface because the deposits were so deep in that area that over time, people 
while the, the maybe the the knowledge that Pompeii was once a town there was around in the records, in the Roman records from that era, people didn't know where it was. So it was only almost by chance that archaeologists excavated Pompeii. And I think the excavation only started a, a, a hundred or 200 years ago, relatively recently that we knew Pompeii was there. So when you go walking around Pompeii, they have these wonderfully preserved building structures and roads. It's kind of, when you're walking around, it's hard to remember that this would have been under meters and meters and meters of material from Vesuvius. And it's they've removed all that material to uncover this huge town. It's actually a massive area that they've got as the visitor's area for Pompeii that was just, yeah, like you say, wiped off the face of the earth for seven, eight hundred years between the eruption itself and from when it was then discovered again and excavated again. And that that eruption that Pompeii was buried, the pyroclastic flows there were not generated by a dome collapse, correct? Yep, that was one of these other types of pyroclastic flows where we have a huge amount of pumice and volcanic ash that's coming up into the air, and then all of a sudden it's going on the ground instead. So if you're if you're on the ground, if you're visiting someplace that's a safe place to visit around a volcano, how would you go about looking at deposits and telling the difference between different types of pyroclastic flow deposits? So the deposits themselves, because they, uh, because we classify them as being formed in different ways, they will contain within them slightly different proportions of the different contents. So for example, a block and ash flow that's formed from a lava dome will contain a lot of very dense lava blocks that come from a lava dome. But if we were to look at the Vesuvius pyroclastic flows, they wouldn't have nearly as many of those really dense lava blocks. Instead, they would be full of pumice, which are still chunks of rock, but the chunks of rock would have lots and lots of bubbles, which are formed during these big explosive eruptions instead of during these somewhat quieter, effusive lava dome events. So we can look at the proportions of what is in the pyroclastic flows to work out where they've come from. I remember looking at some of the pyroclastic flow deposits uh, from the Kairoa eruptions at Tarawera and also being struck by the fact that the blocks, they show evidence that the blocks were hot when they came down as well. Yeah, so that happens to be the volcano that I did most of my research at, which is the volcano Tarawera. And in that area, you see at the very bottom of this succession, you see this this pumice-rich pyroclastic layer, which is the initial explosive eruption and the pyroclastic flows that would have been formed in a very similar way to Vesuvius. And then above them, you have the block and ash flows from the lava domes. And you're right, absolutely. You see uh, the occasional block, which looks a bit different to the others. Most of the blocks are these dark, very glassy, they look almost like obsidian blocks of material in there. And then occasionally you'll find one of these chunks which looks very different. And the surface of this block has cracks on it. And you can see where these more resistant blocks have kind of pushed into and squashed these blocks together. We call those parts, we call them bread crust bombs. So they are these hot bits of the lava dome that as they form, they're puffing up because they're, they're a little bit hotter, they're a little bit more ductile than the rest of it. And they're able to expand as these gases come out and then into the flow they go. And then they're getting bashed around by these colder harder, denser blocks, and it's causing all these impacts and squashing it down to these weird shapes. I did most of my postdoctoral work on uh, Terrawera. I was looking at 
these 1300 AD, roughly, rhyolites that erupted from uh, Tarawera. What did you find out about the volcano? Because I'm, of course, fascinated by it. It's got a cool zircon history, but that's very different than what you're looking at. Yeah, sure. I was looking more at the, the history of the domes towards the end of the eruption. So based on other people's work in the area, we think that the eruption of the domes may have lasted as long as four years after the initial explosive eruption, that these domes were slowly growing in place. And over this four-year period, they were constantly shedding material as these block and ash flows. So what I was hoping to do when I was there is to try and connect this dome growth period with what was causing these collapse events because the dome growth period of four years was forming these um, block and ash flows. But we also, when we look at the edge of the dome, we see evidence that collapse events were occurring after it finished moving. So we see these areas at the very edge of the volcano, which have incredibly, incredibly vesicular. So a lot of bubbles in there and the bubbles are really round. Now, when you normally form bubbles in a lava, because that lava is moving, they get sheared and squashed and squished and they go from a nice spherical bubble into like a tube or a flat, flattened bubble. But these things on the edges of the dome suggested that they were actually inflating after the dome had finished moving. And so that sort of suggests that these collapse events were occurring after this four-year period. And so I was trying to connect how they were or why they were still collapsing, what was going on inside the, the lava dome as it cooled down, as it kind of settled and kind of squashed itself, uh, the weight of itself kind of squashing down. Did that change the strength of the lava dome? Could we connect that to these uh, collapse events? So could you? <laughs> Unfortunately, we couldn't. Not exactly, at least. We did find that what would likely happen is at the end of uh, this event, we have this a lot of lava dome there that's squashing down. What it's going to do is it's going to start weakening the rock. You're going to start fracturing the rock. There's going to be tiny, tiny cracks that are occurring there that might well lead to the you know, weakening of the structure itself. But there's also a lot of other things going on at that time as well, such as you have crystallization processes going on as well. And so we ended up sort of being able to go, well, Perhaps there is this evidence to say that the squashing of the lava dome may lead to weakening because of these micro fractures that are forming, but we also need to do a lot more work on it. So, I mean, it's interesting too that at Terraware, these domes from uh, 1300-ish AD were then blasted through the middle by the 1886 eruption that was a basalt eruption. So Terraware has got an interesting personality uh, to produce both large explosive rhyolitic eruptions of sticky high silica magma plus later on eruptions of stuff that is much lower in silica but still producing a really big explosive eruption oh absolutely i'd say tarawira is almost unique in that case i think there's one other volcano somewhere in italy that might have done something similar to it but this is why tarawira for me was so useful is that you have this pile of lava domes on top of the volcano and then straight through the middle of it we have this huge fissure that's been cut by a later eruption in 1886. And for me, looking at the lava domes, that means that I could get down inside the core of the lava dome to study the structures inside, which you normally you can't get to see because, well, it's in the middle of a massive pile of lava. So for me, that was 
brilliant. I could see these structures and I could try and work out how the dome had formed over time. We like to do things differently in New Zealand. The 1886 basalts, too, are, for a petrologist are fascinating because you find partially melted chunks of rhyolite that have been recycled up through during the events leading up to and during the actual eruption itself. So yeah, Terraware is one of these sort of volcanologists and petrologists dream volcanoes, although it is kind of a, a odd place because it does behave so much in a such different fashion than a lot of volcanoes that we, we think about. I think something that we haven't touched on yet that we, we really should is two things. How fast pyroclastic flows go and how far pyroclastic flows go. Because these are two of the really impressive, terrifying and deadly parts of these things. So we talked, we've spoken about how hot they are, the different ways that they form and what that means for how they can travel. But what, what do you guys, off the top of your head, what's the farthest pyroclastic flow you can think of? I, I would struggle to probably provide you with a number, but from my memory, looking at the huge, huge eruptions from the calderas of New Zealand, you can find very distal pyroclastic flow material. I would say hundreds of kilometers away, although I might be quite wrong with that one, but I know for sure that these pyroclastic flows like you said, Janine, have climbed over entire mountains and been deposited on the other side of these huge mountain ranges. So they certainly have a lot of energy. I'd say in the right scenarios where these massive events are able to channel their way through a valley, you might be able to trace uh, a length of I would say, let's say 150 kilometers. That, that sounds about what I was I was thinking too. And it's this is where, of course, as a volcanologist, it gets tricky because you're also, if you're having these massive uh, eruptions to produce flows that can travel that far, you're also getting a lot of ash. So identifying, you need to know what sort of textures you need to look for in outcrop to tell the difference between these sorts of deposits. But yeah, you can have, you know, I'm trying to remember 100, 150 kilometers is the number that popped into my head, but I can't remember exactly what volcano I'm thinking of that had produced that. I think some of these, yeah, big eruptions, you know, regularly are producing things that are 50 to 100 kilometers long. And especially once they get cruising down channels, they can do that as well, looking at things like Katmai in Alaska in the early 20th century and the, and big eruptions like that. So I've got some numbers for you because this is horrifying and fascinating. So you need something really a really important point there is is that explosive eruptions and even non-explosive eruptions have multiple different types of hazard sometimes at the same time. So that's another complication with studying volcanoes and monitoring volcanoes is you can't go, this volcano is going to erupt, it's going to do this at that time and affect this area. It's what different products can this volcano produce and what different areas can those different products actually impact. So that's a good point. And the other that I, I try to always make is when we're talking about the biggest, generally, the bigger something is with volcanoes, the more rare it is. So smaller eruptions are much, much more common than the big ones. But in saying that, so pyroclastic flows usually go within maybe a few hundred meters for the really tiny ones, usually up to about 80 kilometers out from the volcano. So looking at the fatalities from about 1500 to 2017, so this is a really great paper by Sarah Brown et al. So 50% of fatalities have occurred within 10 kilometers. 90% of them within 20 kilometers. So that's usually the dangerous areas we're looking at. But if you want to go to the most extreme, the to young Toba Tuff, so Toba, you know, 74,000 years ago, it erupted 2,500 to 3,000 cubic kilometers of rock. Now that's all those different processes. And the pyroclastic flows covered 20,000 
kilometers squared. The ash was over 4 million kilometers squared. I'm not sure if those are up the most up-to-date values. So the volcano that I was thinking of was um, the Peach Springs Tuff, which is out in the southwest of the U.S. I remember looking at some of these deposits in, in Arizona, and the Peach Springs Tuff has pyroclastic flows that they know traveled at least 170 kilometers from the source. Do you want to quickly explain what a tuff is for everyone? I mean, this is one of these questions I get from my students a lot too, is like, what's the difference between a tuff and an ignimbrite and all these other terms? You know, for me, at least, I think of a tuff as a deposit of volcanic debris that uh, has things like uh, pumice fragments and ash and possibly crystals and things, but maybe there is a more Vulcanologic rather than petrologic definition for a tough. And what about an ignimbrite since you've mentioned that? I tend to think ignimbrites tend to be large scale deposits of explosive volcanic debris of tephra that are produced from a big, large explosive eruption. They're very similar. You know, ash flow tough and ignimbrite are kind of interchangeable in many ways. Yeah. So the term ignimbrite was actually initially used to describe these massive pumice rich, so a lot of pumice, pyroclastic flow deposits. And they were so big and so hot that they actually welded into a solid rock. So you have these flows that are made up of billions or even trillions of particles that are so hot it's actually welded together. But we've since updated the term. It's not just welded. They're just these really big pumice-rich pyroclastic flows that are formed during these very large eruptions and that are quite rare considering the whole scale of volcanic activity. So ignimbrite is something we have a lot in New Zealand, so something I grew up with, but you do definitely get a few different areas in the States that have produced them as well, but that's definitely the larger end scale, in member of pyroclastic flows. So you had a second part to what you said we needed to, to talk about. We talked now, a little bit about distances. What was the other thing? You've written about this. Can you outrun a pyroclastic flow? Let's ask our guest. Can you outrun a pyroclastic flow? Well, I mean, no, is the simple answer to that one. So I, what I found, I was doing a bit of reading this morning, and I found about the uh, the pyroclastic flows from Mount Pelee on Martinique. And just doing some very, very brief uh, research, it seems that those pyroclastic flows were calculated to be 670 kilometers an hour. That's uh, for the non-kilometer per hour people, that's 420 miles an hour. I would say you would not be able to outrun that. You wouldn't even be able to outdrive that or outfly that. No. So the, the general speed, they usually run 80 kilometers an hour or 50 miles per hour. So if you're thinking of driving away from something like that, sure, maybe if you're on a road, a straight road. <laughs> <laughs> and can drive, but they can get much, 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 much faster than that, especially when they're racing downhill and you are not on a road or a car. So I don't know if how many of you out there saw these videos last year. There was a horrible eruption at Fuego Volcano in Guatemala, and it's resulted in a lot of fatalities. I don't know the final number. And there was videos of people standing on a bridge watching this pyroclastic flow come towards them. This was a video that every time I watch it, it makes my hair stand on end. It's it's horrifying. I know I'm using that word a lot today, but that's what these things are. Not understanding that something so deadly is racing towards you is something that drives me as a communicator to help everyone understand what these are, what they look like, and what to do. So generally, with a pyroclastic flow, what would you guys say is the best mitigation strategy? Not be there? Yes. <laughs> Not be there. They're so fast. And, you know, that's where the speed comes in, is that these things are, you cannot outrun them. The fast, So Usain Bolt runs 42 kilometers an hour or 27 miles per hour. 
So if these are on the lower end, 80 kilometers an hour, there's no chance. But with this Fuego video, people were standing on a bridge that was perpendicular to where the pyroclastic flow was coming down. So they could run sideways and escape it. So you can definitely run away from where it's going, but running away from it directly is, is not going to happen. Sorry, Jurassic Park, Chris Pratt, not going to make it. Yeah, and there's even, thinking of, of the Pelé eruption, if you've read some of the accounts, uh, there's a lot of details of even people who are sort of in areas next to where the flows went did not do too well, because it's not just like the material stays solely confined to the channel. You might get out of the way of the flow, but there's so much ash that's in the air that that's going to do you in as well. So it's really being away from the volcano before any of this sort of stuff happens is the best way to survive your pyroclastic flow uh, hazard by a, a long shot. So even, you know, even trying to build a structure that could survive it is going to be next to impossible because the heat that comes with it as well. You hear about the, the I think, two survivors during the Pele eruption. Not true. Not true. Not true. Were there, there were more. But there, there were? Yeah. Okay, I was going to... Uh -huh, apparently. I was expecting that you were going to say less. No, no. They, well, there were two in the town, but there were also the people out on the ships and around, so... That's, that's been exaggerated over the years. Yes, I mean, well, part of it is because, of course, one of them went on tour with, I think it was P.T. Barnum afterwards. So it was amplified to the idea that there was a sole survivor of the eruption because it would draw in crowds, of course. But he was, the one that was most famous was deep in a jail cell and still got severe burns. So yeah, getting out of there is the best way to handle it. Yeah, and even, even if you do have an underground bunker, the deposits of these things can be so thick and so hot. It can be quite a while till someone can get you out of that. That would be very uncomfortable. I actually have a quote from someone who did survive that. It wasn't the individual who may or may not have been in the jail. It's actually someone living on the outside edge of the city. I have a quote taken from their experiences, if you're interested. Yes. So the quote goes like this. I felt a terrible wind blowing. The earth began to tremble and the sky suddenly became dark. I turned to go into the house and with great difficulty climbed the three or four steps that separated me from my room and felt my arms and legs burning, also my body. I dropped upon a table. At this moment, four others sought refuge in my room, crying and writhing in pain, although their garments showed no sign of having been touched by flame. At the end of 10 minutes, one of these, the young Devolod girl, aged about 10 years, fell dead. The others left. I got up and went to another room where I found the father Devolod, still clothed and lying on the bed, dead. He was purple and inflated, but the clothing was intact. Crazed and almost overcome, I threw myself on a bed, inert and waiting death. My senses returned to me from perhaps an hour when I beheld the roof burning. With sufficient strength left, my legs bleeding and covered with burns, I ran to Fons-Saint-Denis, six kilometers from Saint-Pierre. This is why I keep using the word horrifying. Yeah, there, there really isn't a lot of sort of day-to-day -day experience that prepares you for thinking of those sorts of situations. So yeah, getting out of the way, that's the thing to do. Yeah. Like if, if you think of, if you're cooking something and like me, if you don't usually stand back far enough when you open the oven, that rush of hot air that comes out, if you imagine the rush being hotter and faster, 
and you know they were on the edge where they were getting the gas but if you can imagine that being filled with tiny hot particles of hot rock and glass as well you can begin to understand hypothetically what these might be like and I've, I've you know having studied pyroclastic flows I've made read much worse much more gruesome accounts than what you just read you know these are truly one of the worst natural things on earth so on that uplifting note <laughs> sorry oh, do you have any do you have any uh, uh words that you'd like people to remember about what you do or things that excite you about your research as we sort of wrap up the interview here i mean we spent a lot of time <laughs> discussing how how terrible these things are and you know having been caught in one is pretty much a death sentence. But I think that these events are still fairly rare and unusual. And one of the main things to take away here is if you live in the area around a volcano, it is very unlikely that these events are going to occur with no warning whatsoever. There will be some amount of seismic activity. There will be something that occurs on the volcano. And hopefully, the authorities where you live will be able to recognize that warning and get you out of there before this event occurs. So if you do live in an area of the volcano that you think um, forms a pyroclastic flow, then the best thing I can say is to start finding out about that. Ask your local hazard center if you have one or a museum or a university that has some geologists there. Try and find out a bit of information about it. That's the best thing that you can do. And for me and like what I do, although these things, you know, you hear these experiences of people and you see the after effects of these pyroclastic flows. One of the things that I find so fascinating about being an earth scientist and being a volcanologist is this sort of sense of awe and this humbling experience that I get when I research these things and when I go to these places and find out about these things. It is very humbling to learn about how powerful the earth is that we don't really know exactly how powerful it is or how these events, we were still learning a lot about it. Um, and for me, that's why I love doing what I'm doing because there's so much still left to learn. Well, thanks so much for coming and chatting with us about these pyroclastic flows and domes for the last 40 minutes or so. No problem. My pleasure. You've been listening to episode number five of Popular Volcanics. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can go over to patreon.com slash popular volcanics and make a pledge. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at Pop Volcanics. You can also send us an email if you have questions or comments at popularvolcanics at gmail.com or head over to popularvolcanics.weebly.com to find out more information and to see the links about. So with that, we will talk to you again soon.